In this edition of Hoopsology, Justin and Matt welcome writer for SB Nation, covering the NBA and WNBA, Sabrina Merchant. Sabrina brings her insight into how the production of the WNBA draft has improved this year. We talk about at Kathy and Hooper, the expansion of the league, and what went wrong with the Los Angeles Lakers this year. Sabrina was a great guest. You're not going to want to miss this chat. Get in touch with the show through Facebook and Twitter. Leave us a review on iTunes and email us. Email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. We are a proud member of the OTG Basketball Network. And now, Sabrina Merchant. We now welcome writer for SB Nation covering the NBA and the WNBA. We welcome Sabrina Merchant onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Sabrina? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on to the show. And wanted just to pick your brain on several topics you have great knowledge in both covering the WNBA and nba so you have a very i think um interesting perspective on a lot of topics so let's jump into it and i just want to get your thoughts on just the WNBA WNBA draft overall from just any from this any surprising picks to just the presentation i know i was just really impressed from you know this kind of having a more of a live audience feel and just a look and just um all the coverage just seems really slick compared to years past. Um, what was kind of your thoughts on just the WNBA draft overall? Yeah, so this was the first time that the WNBA had an in-person draft in three years, first since 2019. And I thought the first round, they really knocked it out of the park. Like all of the family tables, I thought they got some really nice color from all of the family members. Um, I, I love, you know, the moment when the draftee first gets up on stage and gets to talk to Holly Rowe and they go through all the personal backstory. I mean, for some reason, it always it always goes a little bit darker than I'm anticipating, but like it's nice to get that personal story, you know, at that moment. Um, and I just thought the look of it was really nice. Like a, it was very heavy orange, obviously, which is the WNBA's color. They're going to lean into that. Um, there's got to be a better way of like doing the lighting so that it's not aggressively orange over here. <laughs> sure, that's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, the Indiana Fever are always great for taking someone who you would never expect to be on your first round board. And I'm delighted that we get a consistent surprise every year. And I mean, it really shouldn't be a surprise that they're going to do it every year, but um, I'm always blown away by who the Indiana Fever takes. So that's always fun. Um, and yeah, I just, I really felt like the excitement, the energy, like the whole weekend that they had leading up to the draft in New York, where they got to light up the empire state building orange and like got to take most of the first round uh, selections on like a little, you know, tour of New York with some of the New York Liberty players. I thought it was really well done and just a, uh, a cool way for like them all to experience the joy of being drafted because it is such a hard lead to make. Like if you get drafted in the second round, yeah. your chances of making a roster like are, you know, like less than 20%. So just to have that experience at least of being catered to and like being celebrated because you got to this point at least and you had an amazing collegiate career. Uh, so I, I thought that was really nice. Um, I, I always go back and forth on how the WNBA presents the second and third rounds. Cause like they don't actually call all the individual players. Uh, they just sort of put the names on the broadcast sometimes. Yeah. And like, it does really suck for the players that, you know, get selected in those rounds that they don't get the moment of like getting to shake hands with a commissioner or, you know, that option. But on the other hand, like if we're using the draft as a product to like, in, you know, inoculate new fans of the league, they really only need to know the first rounder. So I understand why so much emphasis is placed on the first round. Um, but I, I struggle with like the presentation of it. Like, should we go, you know, balls out and like say everybody's name through the first 36, even if, you know, 15 of those players are going to get cut by now, you know, I don't know, but it's, it's not a problem that I envy having to solve. <laughs> so 
I want to ask you, Sabrina, in terms of what's going to happen this upcoming season, I think today was announced that the Seattle Storm is going to, has a deal with Amazon. So those games, a lot of those games will be broadcasted on that broadcasting platform. What are your expectations for the league moving forward in terms of not only just broadcast presentation, but kind of goals and benchmarks moving forward that would appease you or make you happy compared to last season? That's a really good question. Uh, um, lot, lots of things to think about there. Uh, let's just start with the broadcast of it all. Um, so the, the WNBA has a pretty close partnership with ESPN, and most of its major games are broadcast on ESPN or ABC or just like the ESPN family of networks. Uh, and I think it's it's a really strong partnership because there's so much women's basketball talent in that network that serves the league really well. Like Ryan Rucco, Rekha Lobo, Holly Rowe, John Robinson, like all of those people do a really excellent job of covering the league and they have a college background. So there's like a seamless transition when the rookies come in, you feel like you've been on board with these players the whole time because they do such a great job of covering it. But at the same time, like ESPN has so many responsibilities to so many other leagues that if we only relied on ESPN to carry national games for the W, then it would be a very limited selection as we have you know, seen in previous years. Um, but then it's also kind of difficult to like navigate how to watch the league if, oh, sometimes I have to turn into CBS Sports Network. Sometimes I have to turn into Amazon Prime. Like the Commissioner's Cup final was on Amazon Prime last year. This new exciting mid-season tournament that the WNBA had selected. And it's like, why am I tuning into a streaming service to watch this? Uh, and then like, if you want to watch local games, sometimes you have to have a local affiliate network, or if you have league pass, like then there are blackout issues and all sorts of things. So consuming the product, um, I think it's great that there are all of these avenues, you know, that are willing to broadcast the W and clearly are making these media rights deals with the league that I'm assuming are bringing in money in the league. But like it just makes it a little bit more challenging as an average consumer to figure out like, okay, if I want to watch the WNBA, this is what I do. Like I saw someone make the comparison on Twitter today. Like, let's say you're trying to watch the NWSL and like, this is not a league that is, you know, widely broadcast, I would say, but it has one clear partner. Like it's with CBS. So if you want to watch the games, they're going to be on CBS, CBS sports network or the CBS streaming service, which I believe is called Paramount. So like, that's it. And maybe it's like not the most widely accessible for everyone, but you know exactly where to tune in. Whereas like I, I cover the WNBA. Like I don't know where games are on half the time. Like I'm constantly checking like, okay, is this going to show up on league pass today? Like, um, do I have to figure out a workaround? Like it's, it's a little complicated. Um, but I, I also don't know like what Avenue the WNBA has in terms of like, you can't just wait for ESPN to figure out like, oh, the WMA performs really well for us. Maybe we should invest more in it, especially during the summer when like, yeah, we have a lot of other properties, but Sunday night baseball is only once a week, you know, like we could turn on the WMA a lot. Uh, so that that's like, I don't know, something I think about a lot is how they want to pursue broadcast. I really think it would make more sense to just lean into one partner, really commit to that one partner just to make it clear for fans as to where they can tune in. Um, but I mean, if they're getting money from these other deals, like how do you turn that down? Right. Like that's, that's not really a position the league is in. Right. Um, yeah. And, it's a fascinating yeah. argument. I'm sorry to cut you off. Like the no, simplicity ahead. versus, um, you know, just like availability or, or kind of quantity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then the thing is like when the league brings in new money, like where is that going? Because we have this collective bargaining agreement that was set up in 2020 and it it runs for at least another three seasons before the players have a chance to opt out. And the cap is basically set at like 3% increases every year for the rest of this collective bargaining agreement. 
So it's not like most of the money is going back into players' hands, right? Like it's not going into the salary cap. So what is it going into, right? Is it going into presentation of the league? Like I would love to go to WNBA.com and see a stats page where the teams were listed in alphabetical order. I think that'd be very helpful for my purposes. Mm. And for some reason they're not. Um, mm. Like, does it go into making League Pass a better product? I don't know. Like, I know the League Pass price went up this year, uh, like, a significant amount. I mean, I say significant. It went up from, like, 16 to 25, which is a very affordable amount, but, like, a significant percentage. So, you know, what is that going to? Is it going to, like, better facilities and stuff for WMA players? Is it going to assisting in their travel budget? Like, I don't know. But if the money is coming in, I want to see the players reaping the rewards of it. And if they're not getting paid more and they're still complaining, Complaining about these travel conditions and things like that, and I'm still not being able to like watch the games everywhere I want to. Like, there's just a disconnect there, right? Like, I I want to mm. see what the money is being used for. Sabrina, I'm curious to get your thoughts, uh, kind of along these lines of broadcasting strategy. Do you think there would be any benefit to? airing WNBA games at the same time as the NBA season rather than having the league sort of spread out like that? Is there uh, a benefit to sort of like synergy with the NBA rather than just sort of, for lack of a better term, maybe like an extension of mm-hmm. the, the basketball season? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question because the WNBA has only ever existed as a summer league. And why it's a summer league, I I guess because the Olympics were during the summer and they wanted to capitalize on the Olympics momentum, you know, to launch this professional league. But the way the WMA players are paid, like there's just not enough money for them to play in the U S year round Mm. and for it to be worth Mm -hmm. their while. Right. Like the top salary in the WNBA this season is about $230,000. Like we're looking at someone like John Cole Jones who won MVP last year and makes that much in a month when she plays overseas. And then she gets to play overseas for six months. And like, that's a much better use of her time than it would be mm. to play in the WNBA for that long. So I think as long as the compensation is what it currently is, the WNBA just doesn't have the right to expect players to stick around that long. Um, if they were going to bump up the, you know, the payment, then like, obviously I think it would be much better to have the WNBA at a normal fall winter basketball schedule. Like, basically every other basketball league in the world. I think that would be a much smarter idea. Yeah. Um, I sort of think of the summer as like three on three time, you know, or just like exhibition basketball time or international basketball time. It doesn't feel to me like professional basketball time. And maybe that's just a consequence of like the American sporting atmosphere. I'm like plenty of leagues run in the summer, like soccer is during the summer. They seem to do all right for themselves. But um, I just think like it all starts with just the, the revenue, right? Like if they're getting paid more then they'll be willing to stay. And then we can talk about putting them in, you know, prime time, because I do think that synergy is a nice idea. Like, you know, the Phoenix Suns, um, you know, push back one of their exhibition games. so They could do a doubleheader with the Phoenix Mercury playoff okay. game back in October. That's really totally. cool. I think it'd be great if like the Sparks and Lakers did that or, you know, plenty, not that they're actually owned together, but they play in the same building or like, you know, the Fever and the uh, Pacers, God, um, or just like any team that exists in the same market. I think capitalizing on that synergy would be a lot of fun. Like we see their players tweet at each other and like they hold each other's jerseys and pictures sometimes. And like, that's fine. But I do think that there would be more ability to capitalize on that synergy if they were actually in town at the same time, which doesn't really appear to happen. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I just think that double header sounds like such a nice idea. Um, it's like, so much fun. <laughs> exactly. Like you, yeah. you can't tell me, I mean, I know, 
as Justin and I, and, and you, Sabrina, more hardcore basketball fans, like, of course, we love the idea of a doubleheader. But I, I imagine even for the casual sports fan, if if you're just thinking I get more, like if, if I'm taking my kids to a sporting event, like I'm getting more sports for this doubleheader ticket. And, you know, I got I got a son and a daughter. I can have, you know, basketball with women that appeals to my daughter even more potentially. And it's a great product, either one that you're watching, obviously. So you get more sports uh, into the day for that double header. I, I just think there's such a huge benefit to that idea. Yeah. And I'm sure you'd have the opportunity to like buy a ticket for one or the other, you know, it's not like a requirement to stay for both, but exactly. I just think and that, I think yeah. you could figure out a way to like mm -hmm. filter that so that you're, you're filling up both games. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, with the WMA players overseas during the bulk of the NBA season and then NBA players going back to wherever they live, you know, during the summers, which a lot of times is LA or, you know, Vegas or wherever they happen to summer, like it's just, they're not overlapping as much as you would want. So like, I think about Minnesota a lot where, you know, they have a really strong, um, connection between the Lynx and the Wolves because, you know, they're under the same ownership and they have all of the same facilities and like, you know, the Lynx head coach Cheryl Reed was even on the search committee for like the Wolves head coach and like, you know, Carl Anthony Towns, like in the Fisa Collier one rookie of the year, like within a couple of years of each other. And it was like, that could have been like such a fun coordinated campaign between the two of them. And like, I don't think I've ever seen the two of them in the same room. <laughs> like that seems like such a wasted opportunity. For sure. Um, Sabrina, I want to ask you about Kathy Engelberg. And <clears throat> this is something I've been really passionate about. And I want to, I've been asking just our guests that, have, that cover the WNBA a lot closer than Matt and I do about their insight and just to see if we're missing something or if there's a little bit more of a different perspective that be that can be presented. Because in my mind, I don't think Kathy Engelbert is the necessarily the right person to lead the WNBA just because I feel like this league is on the verge of really taking the next step in terms of just – the way the players are being paid in terms of the popularity, their traction on social media. I feel like the pandemic was a massive turning point for this league in a positive direction. And when I see her on news outlets, for instance, just on just commenting on the Brittany Griner situation or just talking about the chartered flights. And I understand that in a commissioner similar to Adam Silver, they, she works for the owners of the league, but I just think as a spokesperson, when there's, you know, there's, you have those people out there that for some reason just say stupid comments about the WNBA. I just feel for a league that is rising and has potential to get a major rights increase for all these streaming services or all these broadcast partners that I feel like there should be somebody that's the face of the league that's pushing how great the WNBA is on a regular basis. And instead, when I, when I hear the WNBA talked about on kind of non, I don't know how I say this, so not like NBA Today or not even on Sports Center, but other mediums that are not necessarily promoting the WNBA. It's usually about like something controversial or always about like the payment of the players, which is very important. But I also feel like there should be promotion of the players. I mean, this looks incredible. I mean, it's awesome to watch. And I just feel like that's not necessarily promoted enough compared to other leagues, which start out with major deficits that have more of a a face of it that's always pushing how great the league is. And we've seen the heights that they've taken. And I used that comparison of like the UFC uh, with Dana White. And I have plenty of beats with Dana White. He is no saint by any means. But I can tell when talking to him, he loves he loves the UFC. 
and he's always pushing the athletes within our organization. I just feel like if there was somebody like that that at least was pushing the athletes in the WNBA on a regular basis all the time, the excitement, I feel like that would benefit the league in that regard. So what are your thoughts? Am I being too harsh, or do you think you know there's another direction that could be taken here? Yeah, so I, I feel for Kathy because she came in to her job in the middle of the 2019 season and sure. then gets half a year, um, does a really nice thing in the 2019 postseason by uh, providing charter flights for the semifinal round of the postseason, sure. you know. And honestly, I thought that it was one of the best rounds of the WMA playoffs I've ever seen. And I don't think that it was a coincidence that their travel accommodations had something to do with, like, the fact that they seemed well-rested two days after sure. playing another game. <laughs> um, but then, you know, the pandemic comes and – the WNBA is the first league that comes back. And I think she deserves a tremendous amount of credit for that, for working with the Players Association and Agreed. creating the bubble, whatever the faults were of that 2020 season. Um, it's just her attempts to grow the league were immediately put on halt because of the financial situation of the pandemic, right? Like, it's not that gate revenue is enormous in the WNBA, but to go from whatever it was to yeah. zero right away in the middle of like this entire economic global crisis, really, really tough situation <laughs> to be in. Um, sure. But I also do think that for whatever reason, the WNBA finds itself putting out fires more often than other sports leagues. Like we're always talking about the problems that exist with the league as opposed to the play on the court. And I wonder if that's because there are fewer games and there's just more time to talk about the other stuff. Like they're only in season from May to October. So is it just because there's all this air to fill and like we have to do it with something and Oh, it's like, really in vogue to talk about equal pay and all of the things that we could be doing to address, uh, you know, the inequities in WNBA. Um, and like the fact that the league is so socially conscious, I think is a benefit, but also it sort of forces them to address everything else that's going on as opposed to just the basketball. Like I think about, so I don't really know much about the UFC to be perfectly honest, but I think about MLS a lot because yeah. MLS is exactly the same age as the WNBA. Sure. And there's about to be 32 teams in the MLS, and we're still at 12 with the WNBA. And for some reason, the model for the WNBA has always been we need to have like economic self-sufficiency before we can add new teams. The MLS is like, no, the way we get more money into the league is expansion fees. You make people buy their way into the league, and that's how we grow the product. And like soccer is not that much – like men's soccer is not – like that much more popular than women's basketball in the WM in, in America. So when we talk about like viewership numbers, MLS num games average about like 475 K on ESPN, um, you know, WNBA games regularly can do in that number, like for the playoffs, you know, when, when they're on ESPN. So it's not like there's a dramatic gap in terms of who's consuming MLS versus who's consuming WNBA. I understand ticket revenue way higher for MLS than it is for WNBA, but the, the fact that like that league can be on that path when they don't even have the best talent in the world, like, yeah. far from it, you know, and the WNBA has the very best players who are marketable, you know, because of the Olympics and like all of these other things, like they're on TV all the time in terms of our commercials and everything. Like I, when was the last time you saw an MLS player in like a TV ad and like actually recognized that it was an MLS player? Like it's true. that doesn't happen to me, but um, like Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird and Candace Parker, like these people are marketable names. And we spend so much time talking about like the, the idea of the WNBA and like what it means for women's sports and all of that. And like, I feel like it's existence as this like social barometer kind of obscures the fact that it's just a damn good basketball league sometimes. And I don't know that that's Kathy's fault really. I think that's sort of part of the social consciousness of the players themselves. Um, 
But I do think that like, I wish that they would just be a little bit more bold in terms of growing the league instead of waiting for it to catch up because we have seen again, like a very direct comparison of how like, like fans will come with it. Like it's a really good product and the TV ratings show that there is room for it to grow. Um, but like, it's hard to keep up with the league when there are only 12 teams around the country. Like if you're in, you know, I don't know, where's, where's the place? Like Northern California has no team and you're not going to root for the LA Sparks if you're from Northern California because it's, why would you root for a Southern California team if you're from Northern California? That just doesn't happen, <laughs> right? And like, if you're from Florida, there's no team to root for. So they just need to have a bigger presence. And I think the scars of like all of these teams that folded during the recession Houston have just- Comets. Right, Houston yeah. Comets, Sacramento Monarchs, like Portland Soul. There's, yeah. there's a list of them, I get that. But like that was a very different time. And I think- the league still kind of like plays scared and wants to like be very careful about how it approaches new things. Uh, and that is part of the thing that's holding it back. I don't know if that's a Kathy thing, honestly. I think that's part of partly an Adam Silver thing too. Like every time Adam Silver gets on stage and talks about the WNBA, he says how it's losing money. Like how is it's that true. helpful for us? Good point. It's true. You know, good point. Um, every sports league loses money. The MLS hemorrhages money, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. but yet they just keep investing in their product because one of the ways to grow something is to invest in it. Um, so that's what's always bothered me about it. Again, I, I don't think it's a Kathy problem, honestly. Like she brought in $75 million in this capital raise just this last offseason. Um, I think she's doing what she can. It's just the fact that the league is 50% owned by the NBA. And like since David Stern passed over the commissionership, I don't think there's just been a, a really strong interest from the NBA side in terms of growing the league. So you think there's a lack of investment from the WNBA? I'm sorry, from the NBA it's not so the, much a lack of investment from the NBA. It's that the NBA, like, why is it holding on to this 50% if they don't want to do anything with it? Yeah. You know? I guess it is yeah. kind of lack of investment, but it's like, it's a lack of interest almost. Yeah. Well, it, I think that's an excellent point. And I know if you see even like TNT, like their coverage, you see a little bit more in terms of pushing some of the WNBA content, you know, Candace Parker being an analyst on the, on the Tuesday night broadcast. But you know, it's just still, you should, I would expect more synergy between these two leagues. Um, and that there's just a lack of that. So I, and, and you bring up a lot of good points because just thinking about it, I just feel like with the landscape now changing in terms of all these streaming services wanting content desperately, I feel like the WNBA is in line for a massive rights increase. I just feel like whoever partner they're going to be with, whenever the next run my negotiations come up, they're going to get paid. And I just feel the way that the league has presented now, like you were mentioning, it's a lot more of just kind of the problems as opposed to like the great play on the court. And I think there's also a paradigm shift in terms of even somebody like a Paige Buckers or players that are in high school that are getting a lot more hype, you know, similar to like a Zion Williamson where they're in high school. They're not even in college yet. Like people have, I've heard of Paige Buckers like in high school as her followed on Instagram because she was awesome. So you're, you're starting to see, I think a lot more, you know, women's players starting from high school, getting not following from college to the pros and I think there's just a lot to capitalize on there. And I'm just, I hope that the league does capitalize on that. And to your other point, too, Matt and I uh, were born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And New Mexico has a huge women's basketball following. And I just feel like always that Albuquerque, I feel, would be a great home for a WNBA team just because I feel like that city would support it, you know, even though they don't have a professional sports franchise. I think it's perfect for that market. And I just hope that they pursue other markets around the country similar to Albuquerque. 
Right. Like we talked about the synergy thing, but I mean, I don't think that you have to pick NBA cities for WNBA franchises, right? Like I think, um, you know, picking on places where there's college fan bases is a really good way of going about it. I mean, that's the best thing the WNBA has going for it is that women's college basketball is a phenomenal product. Um, and I think women's college basketball does a really good job of marketing the basketball. Like I know we had the, um, the gender equity issue with the tournament last year. And like, mm -hmm. it got a lot of coverage, right? The disparity in the weight rooms and things like that. But when it came time for the tournament this year, we talked about Don Staley and Paige Beckers and Haley Van Lith and all of the players. And I think they did a really good job of shifting the focus to like, oh yeah, basketball, these players, phenomenal, you know? And that the WNBA can't capitalize on that momentum, I think is the strangest thing about it, especially when it comes right after the season ends. Go ahead, Matt. Do you have another question? Yeah, well, I, I just wanted to emphasize that, that I think you bring up such good points there, Sabrina, and expansion coincides with building more revenue. Like when you talk about TV rights, which are, you know, the biggest moneymaker for the league, you have to put teams in these larger TV markets. I mean, it, it goes hand in hand, like you can't hold on to this, um, this entity as the NBA and not do anything with it and expect the revenue to grow. Like, you know, you got to do your business or get off the pot, so to speak, uh, as, as far as expanding these teams and promoting that. And I just think with how often you see the WNBA talked about on Twitter in even national headlines now, um, I, I think it is prime for people to be curious about that expanding back into cities where it's left potentially, or if you don't see those as good opportunities, getting into other big TV markets. I, I think it, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, there are some cities where I definitely would love to see the old team resurface, like the Comets, like the Monarchs. I do think um, summertime professional basketball in Florida, probably not going to work that well. <laughs> so maybe it's a good thing that Orlando and Miami no longer have their franchises. True. Hey, you know, there's some things work, some things don't. It's just, I, I just think that there's a, a lack of initiative to try, you know, like there was, like you said, you just need to get them in good TV markets, right? Like Minnesota won four titles in the 2010s. And unfortunately, Minneapolis, not a great TV market, but when it's one of 12, like there's only so many choices to win a WNBA title. So what are you supposed to do? Exactly. Exactly. Um, Sabrina, I, I did want to get your perspective. This is uh, a much heavier topic, but we haven't really had a chance to cover this on the show um, with someone who covers the WNBA as closely as you. What Can you give us just the, <laughs> in a nutshell, maybe update on the Brittany Griner situation? What's going on there? What is the progress there? And what do you see um, as a potential timeline, if, if there can be any pro projections on that as far as her release from Russia? Yeah, unfortunately, we're in a real holding pattern with Brittany Griner right now. Yeah. She's been in detention since February 17th. Uh, her detention was extended until May 19th. And that is when like her trial will like the earliest date that her trial could occur. Um, she faces a maximum sentence of 10 years for uh, the allegedly possessing the vape cartridges that were found in her luggage at the Moscow airport. Um, the, the Phoenix Mercury are kind of behaving as if she will return, you know, halfway through the season. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know what they're supposed to do. Honestly, like you want to project a positive face and she yeah. is the face of the franchise and a really important person to Phoenix and that community. She spent her entire career there in the WNBA. Um, she's said multiple times, like, I don't even like playing the WNBA. I only like playing for Phoenix. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so she is 
she is the Mercury, you know, and I don't really know what they're supposed to do other than, you know, continue to support her charity and her work for the homeless in Phoenix, which I think is a really nice way of supporting her without like getting into all of the legalese of what's happening in Russia. But I mean, the thing is, when we're dealing with a country like that, where I'm not entirely sure how the rule of law works, it just feels disingenuous to try to project what could happen. Um, But as far as we know, she's not going to be starting the season here. Um, All of the teams, you know, all of the players who played on European teams in Ukraine or Russia came back home uh, around that time when Brittany was detained. Uh, And it's going to be a real discussion as to whether they want to go back to those teams next year. And that's a really, really big thing to consider because so many of the very best teams in Europe are in Russia. Like the, like, like the monsters of women's basketball are in Russia. I mean, the, the team that Brittany Griner plays for also employs Brianna Stewart, Courtney Vandersloot, Ellie Quigley, um, else plays for this team i'm forgetting very obvious names but like just uh oh john quill jones also plays there like just a global conglomerate of stars play there and i mean there's always been like this undercurrent of like what really goes on in russia i mean there was a whole podcast series on espn about subert and diana tarazi and the you know the man who brought them over to russia like who's murdered during one of the seasons that they played there so it's not like this has ever been the you know not a possibility but like this is just an entirely new step you know in terms of that danger factor but like WNBA players have to go overseas like so many of them are still in Europe right now like in Western Europe and Spain and Turkey and still continuing the rest of their EuroLeague seasons Uh, but it's just a very clear reminder of like oh this is what they have to do to make the money they feel they deserve because the WNBA is not providing for them right so I mean I, I just feel terrible for her I like I'm glad that yeah. at least like the silence has been lifted because yeah. it was very odd, you know, when no one was talking about her, even though I understand the the willingness to like not treat it as a political situation. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't, I don't really have anything to share that hasn't been already reported. It's just we wait to see what happens on May 19th, I guess. Yeah, and that's, I mean, just what makes it so bizarre. And I guess, uh, I mean, ironic probably isn't the right term, but uh, also just, just kind of tragic that this is a, a country that pays so much for women's basketball. And yet um, you see this happen to a celebrity, I assume uh, a pretty um, big celebrity in Russia, as far as, you know, athletes go um, and, um, you know, who, who knows if it's due to uh, the wartime now and um, what's going on mm-hmm. on a global level that's far beyond what this podcast usually discusses. Uh, but uh, yeah. just uh, a tragic uh, situation, of course. Yeah, yeah just like the, a real strange dichotomy, like you said, in terms of how they treat their professional athletes. Like Tarazi has talked openly about the fact that like, when she uh, had to charter a plane back to Phoenix after the WNBA semifinals last year to get home to her wife when she was delivering their second child, like she chartered that plane on her own dime. And she said, thank you, Russia, because that's where she got the money to be able to charter the plane on her own dime. Um, And like they get treated like queens there, you know, Uh, Brittany Griner gets paid like well above seven figures. Like it's, it's good living for a player who is one of the very best in the world. Like she started for the USA Olympic team. Yeah. And is an enormous reason why they won a gold medal again. So, uh, like, it, there's just a lot of those contradictions that exist in the league. Honestly, like the the team, you know, the New York Liberty that 
tried to push the envelope by chartering flights, you know, for their players, even though it was in violation of the collective bargaining agreement. They're owned by Joe Tsai, who has a lot of his own ties to China and human rights violations going on there that the league conveniently overlooks because he's trying to do nice things for the Liberty. Like it's where the money's coming from is not always where you want it to come from. Got to get the money. I it's it's all very, very tenuous. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, Sabrina, one last question for you before we let you go. Just want to get your thoughts on kind of the the Lakers situation real quick. Just how that just totally imploded. Um, I'm sure you've talked about this ad nauseum, but kind of what is your kind of general synopsis as to what happened this season? And I guess more importantly now, what what is the future of this franchise? Since I, I from what I've heard, they're limited in terms of the moves that they can make. Um, moving forward is is this something that can be salvageable for for next season if anthony davis can get healthy and um they can do whatever they want with westbrook um is there anything kind of salvageable lessons that can be learned from this season that can be improved upon for you know the lakers making you know an improvement um when they return back in october yeah i i have talked to ed nazium about how this Lakers season (laughs) has gone awry um for those of your listeners who are interested, I host a weekly podcast about the Lakers on silverscreenandroll.com. So that is a place that I have talked a lot about um, the failures of this particular administration. Um, essentially, uh, the the Lakers just failed to realize what had made them successful in the previous two seasons and simultaneously undervalued their championship team while overvaluing like the, the setup that got them there. Um, it, it, there's a lot going on. But like they, they just didn't appreciate the value of the role players who were on their team and decided that it'd be better to cash in their assets for a superstar. And the problem is when that player does not play like a superstar or does not fit alongside your other two superstars, then things don't quite work out. Um, I still think that when you have LeBron James, you have Anthony Davis. And I realize LeBron can only really be counted on for about 55 to 60 games a year during the regular season. Um, Same with Anthony Davis. Uh, But when you have those two guys in a playoff setting, I think that's a really good place to start if you're trying to make noise in the playoffs again. But what the Lakers need to figure out a way to do is somehow rebalance their roster in terms of getting more quality players instead of just one high usage guy who's not really fitting again next to LeBron and AD. So, I mean, I've seen a lot of potential trade packages of like using Russell Westbrook's expiring contract to pick up guys like, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, Buddy Heald or Gordon Hayward and some other guys from Charlotte. I think that's probably the right way to go, um, even if it requires, you know, sending out a first round pick, you know, to make that happen but they just need more depth around their two stars instead of, you know, one guy, because I think the theory was that, oh, you know, Russell Westbrook plays 80 games a year. So if LeBron and AD are out, which, you know, we can plan for, it's going to happen. He's a guy who can lead us to wins on a random night in San Antonio or Oklahoma city. And that did not happen. Not even close. So I think the theory is to just get more depth, um, you know, turn that big expiring contract into smaller pieces, essentially the opposite of the trade Rodimir in the first place. Um, I don't think it's like completely unfeasible that they get back to the playoffs, like even like a, a fifth seed next year. I don't expect them to be back in title contention contention next year, just because some of the teams in the West are getting really good. Like Golden State yeah. looks particularly menacing. Uh, Phoenix has just been a buzzsaw, like since the Memphis. NBA bubble. <laughs> Um, if Denver gets Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray back healthy, like just a lot of teams that I don't think the Lakers are going to get on their level quite, but I do think that there is a pathway to get back to the playoffs like comfortably next year. Um, but it requires like the front office, I don't know, making some smart decisions about 
player and coach evaluation, which unfortunately is not something that they've done in recent <laughs> off seasons. Like I'm watching the playoffs and I'm looking at Alex Caruso, like lock up the Milwaukee yeah. Bucks and get <laughs> yeah, 10 assists yeah. in a playoff game. And yep. like, I mean, we could talk about Brandon Ingram, Larry Nance, but like the Lakers traded those guys for real assets, you know, like that's fine. I understand the Anthony Davis trade. I understand the trade that sent away Larry Nance to get that pick from Cleveland. True. They just let Alex Caruso walk for nothing. So like there's <laughs> that, like that's the one that hurts. So, I mean, do I have faith in the Laker front office to do the smart thing? Like, I'm not entirely sure. I really don't know. But there's there's enough pathways to make it work when you have the superstar talent that they have that I'm willing to, you know, hold out some hope. Absolutely. What what is confidence level? And I'm sorry, we'll we'll get out after this question, oh, but just just have to follow up with just kind of the the overall faith in management here. I mean, does 2020, it, it may feel like a stroke of of luck or or what have you, but how are you you feeling about that front office right now? And what is confidence level in them? I mean, do they have the the management in place that can build out of this, you know, to go away from that defensive team that they had that were just shutting down people throughout the bubble? Um and then move away from that entirely when, you know, you have Frank Vogel as head coach, mm-hmm. of course, head coaches often become scapegoats seems to be widely accepted as the case for Frank Vogel there. Um, what, I'm sorry, what's your confidence level with management to, to dig their way out of this? Yeah. So for, for all of the problems that existed during the 2021 off season, and there are many, many, um, the Lakers still constructed a really good roster in 2019, 20. And they constructed a really good roster in 2020-21. A different kind of roster, too. Like, a different shape than the 1921, which I thought was strange, considering they just won a title. But, hey, they thought they could get better in a different way, and they went for it. And, yeah, they lost in the first round of the playoffs. But I don't really blame that on a failure of roster execution. I blame that on, oh, hey, Anthony Davis Bold has grown a couple times and, like, was just never the same. Happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that there was such an overreaction to the injury luck from 2021 that they just ripped up the entire template and said, Hey, Frank Vogel, you know, all those players you love coaching, we're going to take all of them away, (laughs) make your job incredibly difficult. Um, Not hire the one coach that Russell Westbrook gets along with in the league because we're too cheap, too cheap to pony up for Scott Brooks um, (laughs) as your lead assistant. And like, I, I thought that there was like some theory to, Hey, Frank Vogel can make a number one defense out of a team that lost Anthony Davis for half a season and LeBron James for 25 games. Maybe you can give him a little bit worse defensive talent and see what happens, right? Mm. Like you can say, maybe he can coach defense out of guys who are not naturally good defenders. It just went so far in that direction. (laughs) Unfortunately (laughs) that it didn't quite work. Um, So yeah, like of the three years that Rob Polinka and whatever litany of Rambai or in the Lakers front office have had control of maintaining this roster, they went two for three, in my opinion, in building a team. Now, Mm. The mistakes that they made in year three are going to be hard to overcome. But two out of three is not terrible. It's not terrible. It's true. Um, I I think there's still room for a lot of optimism. I don't, despite how this season was just, I think, a, a disaster. I mean, when you're a Laker fan and you've got 17 banners to stare at, there's always room for optimism. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. And I will say I am very grateful to the way that the Lakers treated Alice Caruso to my Bulls benefit. So <laughs> he has been, I'm not complaining. He's been incredible. Especially that Bulls box series just got so much more interesting. Agreed. Nice. Yeah. I was totally dismissing him of like, eh, they're probably going to get swept, but I just think I picked bucks and four. <laughs> I'm yeah, not, not going to lie. 
I, I was just, like, oh, the Bucks figured out how to win last year, and then I forgot. Oh, Alex Caruso also knows how to win. <laughs> he's so underrated, and I just I wish they had Lonzo. I just I think he yeah. is such an underrated player, but you know he's he's injured and hurt, and that's just kind of a the huge only blow silver there. lining of losing Alex Caruso is that now the rest of the league can stop saying that he's only good because he's on the Lakers. <laughs> like it's just universally yeah. recognized that oh yeah, just a good basketball player. He can, yeah. And he, it's one of those things like when he's gone, like he does so much. And, you know, you don't see, you know, once he's gone, everything kind of goes with him. And I think the Bulls really felt it when he was hurt. So I'm glad he's back for sure. Um, Sabrina, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Can you please let our viewers and listeners know where they can find you on social media, um, whatever podcasts you're on, whatever projects you're um, in development with, anything, anything else you want us, our viewers to know as well? Yeah, so I currently direct all of our women's basketball coverage at SB Nation, and most of that lives on swishappeal.com. Uh, and then I also host a weekly Lakers podcast that I mentioned earlier that lives on silverscreenandroll.com. Um, and then once the WNBA season starts, uh, me and my friend Evan host a YouTube show uh, about the WNBA. It's called The Step Through. should be coming back at the start of the regular season. So look for that. Awesome. Sabrina, thanks for talking hoops with us and enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Thanks. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for having me.